This is Archive Atlanta, episode 48, Carnegie Libraries. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Happy Friday, everyone. Hope you're all doing well. This week, I get to talk about my favorite thing in the whole world, books. Well, technically, it's about where we keep books, but it's also a story about gender, power, race, and access to information. Before the age of technology and the internet, books represented knowledge, and knowledge was power. Keeping that power away from people has been a tool used by the ruling party since the dawn of time. Libraries are a physical link to that power struggle, and they help us tell the story. I love to read from what seemed like birth. My mom said that I memorized my toddler board books and then I would run out to the living room and quote unquote read to uh, visitors or strangers and then everybody would kind of ooh and ah about how I could read and then my mom would just tell them I had a good memory. Through elementary school, I read all the special books my teacher kept behind the desk. I used to sneak a flashlight into my bed every night and try to read under the covers and I spent many, many weekends in high school reading Stephen King novels from cover to cover. Now I have a daughter, and at six, she is just starting to show that same love. And man, if it is not the most gratifying feeling in the world to share that with her. All of that to say that this episode was special for me. I learned so much incredible history. And even better, libraries are kind of right up there with churches in the sense that they are often buildings that are the last to remain in a town or city, especially in rural areas. The general history of libraries begins with what are called subscription libraries. In the 18th century, there are almost no libraries provided by public funds that were accessible to all people. Only one, called Cheatham's, which was in England, was fully and freely open to the public. Subscription libraries gained popularity in the 1700s, growing out of small private book clubs. Once they began charging people to check out their books, that they used the profits to expand the collection, and then they would even publish some of their own books. Now, keep in mind, subscription libraries charged, but they were still only available to members who were mostly white and male. In the United States, Benjamin Franklin created one of the first subscription libraries in 1793 called the Library Company of Philadelphia. Andrew Carnegie was born in Scotland and came to the U.S. in 1848 at the age of 12. As a child in Scotland, he had very strong ties and memories about reading and discussing books in the Tradesman Subscription Library, which his father helped create. This is not the podcast to get into his life, um, but I think most of us know the name or know what he did. Uh, He did go on to expand the American steel industry and eventually become one of the richest Americans in history. He was the leading philanthropist of the United States and Great Britain. In 1889, he published an article called The Gospel of Wealth, which called out to other wealthy people to use their riches to improve society. In the last 18 years of his life, he would give away $350 million in his time, which is $5 billion today. Because of his lifelong love of books and libraries, Carnegie would fund public libraries across the globe and across the United States. 
1895, no southern town had a public library like we know today. In a place like Atlanta, which was demolished by war, any bookseller had gone out of business by the war's end. Just two years later, around 1867, the city is finally getting its bearings, and the citizens have a little breathing room again to begin thinking about civic and social matters. Darwin Jones was a bank teller in Atlanta, but originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. In his hometown, he saw the popularity and success of the subscription library system. He gathered his friends, and together they formed the Young Men's Library Association of the City of Atlanta. In 1867, the YMLA was a subscription library open to the general public without entry fee. By general public, I again mean white males. In 1874, the group had 600 members, they had over 4,000 books in their collection, and $300 in their treasury account. Women were accepted in 1873, so not even a decade later, and by 1880, the board had granted lifetime membership to a woman. The first six librarians were men, and from what I read, pretty terrible at their jobs. Some were wounded Confederate veterans, some were quirky, and some were just inept. After the firing of the last man in charge, Allie Billups, the first woman librarian was elected in 1883. Lida Field would be followed by Frances Wallace and then Sister Anne Wallace. These first librarians were from wealthy and well-known families, definitely what we would consider high society women. And although they were damn good at their jobs and very forward-thinking, almost all of them would leave their positions once they were married. At the Young Men's Library Association, you did have to pay to check out a book. As the collection grew, the location keeps moving to various spots around the city while finally settling in its sixth and final home at the corner of Marietta and Spring Streets, which is now Ted Turner Drive. That structure, though, would be sold to raise money to purchase land at the corner of Forsyth and Carnegie Way, which is a spot where the Atlanta Central Library is now, or the one you see today. Walter Kelly was a Southern representative for Carnegie Steel, and he visits Atlanta in 1892. So the YMLA rushes to him and asks for financial assistance. They were like, hey, we really want a library. A special committee is formed within the YMLA, led by Eugene Mitchell, who is father of Gone with the Wind author Margaret Mitchell. Eugene led negotiations, and he was successful. In May of 1899, Carnegie agrees to give $100,000, which, by the way, is about $3 million today, to establish an Atlanta public library. This was the ninth library in the United States to receive this Carnegie grant, and it was the second after Pittsburgh that would go on to have multiple branches. There were rules, though, so to speak. The Carnegie formula is what they called it, and it required a city or town that is in receipt of these donations to also pledge financial assistance from themselves or from the government. In order to get these funds, the local government had to demonstrate the need for a library. They had to explain where they wanted it, who was going to run it, and they annually provided 10% of the cost of construction and then to support operation. Here is where I need to explain something that can be confusing, or at least it confused me at first. 
Only some Atlanta libraries got direct funds from Carnegie Steel. And they were the main branch. There was a South Atlanta branch, um, and Ann Wallace, and then ones at universities. Other libraries existed in the city, so don't send me a hate mail yet. I, there was tons of other libraries, and they would keep that Carnegie name, but those were funded by Fulton County or DeKalb County and the city of Atlanta combined. On July 1st of 1899, the Atlanta city government promised $5,000 annually to support this new library. But this amount, combined with Carnegie's donation, would still not cover the cost of construction. So Q and Ann Wallace, she was the third female librarian of the YMLA, she went to Carnegie and in that same year she essentially talked him into giving them more money. And he said yes. $25,000 was provided for furniture and other costs. And then she went back again two years later and she got another $20,000. Designed by architects Ackerman and Ross, Ross actually designed many other Carnegie libraries across the country. The building was finished in 1902 and it was gorgeous. If you've never seen a photo, I will try to put one in the show notes for you guys. When it opened, only the basement, the book stacks, and the children's room were fully completed. Ann Wallace was aptly named librarian of this new building, and the first book checked out was actually called Alice of Old Vincennes, which I probably mispronounced, um, but it was by Maurice Thompson, and it was the bestseller of the time. From 1902 to 1905, the Carnegie Library downtown had an informal training institute for new employees, led by Anne. And between 1905 and 1930, it was an official Carnegie Library School of Atlanta. Originally called the Southern Library School, but it was the first library school in the South, and all the pupils were women until about 1930. The school was run with monetary assistance from Carnegie, um, but then 1925, it actually starts to become affiliated with Emory University, and then it kind of goes under the umbrella of Emory, and it exists until 1988. Agnes Scott College in Decatur, which has a future episode coming for sure, got its own Carnegie Library in 1906. That was demolished in 1986. Georgia Tech built its own version of a library in that same year, but this one is still here. I have not seen it. It's tucked away in the campus. It's definitely been modified. The inside has been modified heavily to make it administration offices, which what it is now. But preservation in Atlanta is so rare that we're always happy when there's still a building around. The Ann Wallace Branch opens in 1909 at 523 Lucky Street. It was designed by New York firm Whitfield and King, and this was to honor that first female librarian of the downtown Carnegie Library and recognize all of her efforts throughout her life. And you know what's amazing? This building still exists. It's now a SunTrust Bank. It's at the corner of Lucky and Merritt's Avenue. And technically, this is the only original Carnegie Library left. As you can guess, in the time period we're talking about, all of these libraries were accessible to whites only. Black patrons were allowed in the downtown main library, but they could only read in the basement and they were not allowed to check out books. 
At the same time that funds were given for the main library, they were also allocated for a smaller branch, that Ann Wallace branch, and for an African-American branch. For almost two decades, W.E.B. Du Bois, who was living and teaching in Atlanta at the time, and other African-American activists asked for a library. They petitioned the Carnegie Library Board, and for 20 years, they were denied. It's hard for us to imagine in these modern times of the internet age, but books equaled information and knowledge and power. Keeping people away from accessing new ideas was never an accident. At the turn of the century in Atlanta, the only place for black academics to find books was in the Atlanta University Library. Granted $25,000 by the Carnegie system, it was built around 1905. For more about Atlanta University, you have to go way back to episode 5 about Gaines Hall. Let me give you some history on, on the university. In 1905, the university had added a wave of new structures, and this Carnegie Library was one of them. It had a reading room, a reference room, a lecture room, a stack room, which is pretty much where the books were. And from everything I can gather, it was mainly for students and faculty, but they did not deny access to someone in the neighborhood that wanted to come in. It sadly does not exist anymore, but I found a historical photo, and I will put that in the show notes as well. Prior to the opening of the Atlanta University Library, students there had only their textbooks or the books they were able to borrow from a minister or a teacher. When Du Bois and other advocates petitioned the Board of Trustees for a facility, again, they were denied for almost two decades. In 1921, the Auburn Avenue Branch Library finally opens, and it becomes the first of three other libraries that would go on to serve the black community before segregation ended. For the entire decade of the 1920s, Alice Duggett Carey would serve as the first non-professional African-American librarian. Non-professional just means she she wasn't formally trained. Um, She was a school teacher, By trade, um, she was very big into children reading, and I think she actually went on to become the first black female principal of a high school in Atlanta. During the 1930s, Annie McFeeters would serve as the first professional black librarian. And during that time of her reign, um, 81 libraries for African Americans are added throughout the South, with 55 in the state of Georgia alone. They actually called these libraries faith cabins, which I found fascinating, um, and they mostly served rural areas. When a West Hunter Street branch opened in 1949, the Auburn Avenue Library got less and less use. You also had a lot of stuff happening um, on Auburn Avenue with white flight and the interstate coming, but another episode for another day. The library finally closed, and then it was demolished in 1960. There is now at least a marker on that site at the corner of Auburn Avenue and Hilliard. You can see a photo of the library and read a little history about it. But keep in mind, there is still library segregation. The central branch downtown is only accessible to white Atlantans. But that changes in 1959, when African-American Irene Jackson applies for a library card. And if Irene rings any bells, I talked about her in the John Wesley Dobbs episode. She was his eldest daughter, and she is the mother of Maynard Jackson. Irene was a professor at Spelman, 
And when her library card request was denied, she made it very clear she was going to court. In May of 1959, the library board voted to extend equal privileges to black Atlantans. The central library staff would go on to desegregate between the years of 1966 and 1973. The downtown Carnegie Library was remodeled in 1934, then again in 1950 and 1966. It was in 1950 that it was renamed to the Atlanta Public Library, and then it was designated the Downtown Central Branch. It was torn down in 1977, and a new library, which is the one you see today, was completed in 1980. Another interesting fact for you guys, when they demolished this central library building, they took the pieces and then dumped them in the woods. In 1996, they took some parts um, and they used it to build the Carnegie Education Pavilion, which is today on Petrie Street and Baker. So if you've ever seen that, it has beautiful columns. Um, All of those pieces are made from the original library building. The rest of them, though, still lie in the old city of Atlanta dump. So there you have it, the story of Atlanta's Carnegie Libraries and a few other ones as well. Andrew Carnegie funded the building of 2,509 libraries worldwide between 1883 and 1959. 1,795 of those were in the United States and a handful in the city of Atlanta. To see the remnants of this history, you can walk past the Ann Wallace branch on Lucky Street, the Georgia Tech campus branch, You can explore the ruins of the Central Library, either through a sculpture or a walk in the woods. Thank you all for listening. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please share, um, leave a rating or a review. And for just $1 pledge a month, you can get two bonus mini episodes with more Atlanta history. I'm actually releasing my second one for August tomorrow, Down to the Wire. Um, But if that sounds fascinating, just go over to patreon.com. It's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Archive Atlanta. Hope everyone has a great holiday weekend here in the U.S. And I will talk to you guys next week.